When we look out at the universe, it is a fascinating task to try and quantify what is everything out there. We have stars that are easy to see, but beyond stars, there's gas, plasma, dust, black holes, and far beyond the visible limit, far beyond what emits its own light, there are these clumps of matter out there. Planets, asteroids, larger sized objects, smaller sized objects that we just can't see. They don't generate their own light, but they do more than just reflect the light from other stars out there in the universe. These tiny masses can be permeating not only our galaxy, but the universe. Could they be part of the dark matter? Could there be planets not bound to stars wandering the galaxy? This is part of what we're gonna investigate on this edition of the Starts With A Bang podcast. want to know what's out there in the universe, we have to be clever in how we look. It isn't enough to simply gather light from all the self-luminous things out there. We need to involve clever techniques that can help us infer what's out there that doesn't emit its own light. And so to do that for substellar objects, for things even smaller and less massive than brown dwarfs, sure, we have some clever techniques that we can use to find planets around stars, but that isn't going to catch them all. Instead, there's a special technique out there to find these dark wanderers of the universe, to find these rogue planets, to find these planet-sized objects, to find the large and small masses out there that don't emit light. It's called microlensing. And to help us explore that, I'm so pleased to welcome a PhD candidate in astronomy at Vanderbilt University, Savannah Jacklin, to help us answer these questions. Savannah, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. I understand that your specialty isn't just looking at this technique of microlensing, but using it to find explicitly these planets out there that aren't necessarily going to show up through their own light. Why is this such an important task for astronomy? So we have several different methods of finding planets, and most of the ones we use, things like direct imaging, taking a picture of a planet, or radial velocity, which looks at how stars wobble, these techniques all require the planet or the star to be lit up in the first place. But the thing is, the further you get away from planet Earth, the fainter things become. And when we need to look uh, further away, we, as we look further away, it becomes more difficult to actually detect these planets in the first place. So as we go away, transiting exoplanets became more difficult to find, directly images planets become more difficult, and so do radial velocity planets. So most of the planets we know about are actually really close to our galactic neighborhood with the exception of those planets that are detected via gravitational microlensing, and that is my focus. My planets that I look for are located near the center of the galaxy, uh, much, much further than any of the other planets that we know about. 
And in order to understand what types of planets there actually are in the galaxy and are in the universe, we need to look beyond our solar neighborhood. We need to look much further to complete this full census. And this is where microlensing really helps us out. That's really fascinating. You know, we, we've, we've done this podcast a whole bunch, and pretty much every time we talk to observational astronomers, this same concept of bias is always coming up that no matter how we choose to look, because we're picking a specific technique to search for objects, any technique we choose is going to have its own biases, the own its own low-hanging fruit, the objects that are easy to find. If you're going to do direct imaging to look for planets, you're going to be biased towards finding objects that are big relative to their parent star, that reflect large amounts of light, that are well separated from their star, so it's not, you're not getting a whole bunch of light pollution and your coronagraph is effective. And so it's no surprise that, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope, which directly images planets like the one around Fomalhaut, um, that's biased towards these close stars, these big planets, the ones that are well separated. You mentioned the radial velocity technique. This is a technique where you don't detect the planet directly, you detect how the star is moving. The star moves periodically towards you or away from you, and that's its radial velocity, its velocity with respect to your line of sight. And it moves towards you and away from you periodically because of the gravitational tug of its planets on the star itself. So that's biased too towards planets that are in close orbits because close orbits mean short periods and it's biased towards more massive planets. And like you said, there's the transit method. That's biased too. Uh, even the most distant planets that Kepler found, the famous Kepler mission, those are only a few thousand light years away. And some of the planets it found are just hundreds of light years away. But you're talking about a totally different population. You're talking about looking towards the galactic center, which is some 25 or 27,000 light years away. When we look with this microlensic technique, can you start us off by telling us first, what is this technique? How does microlensing work? So microlensing works kind of like a large-scale magnifying glass in space and time. So in order for microlensing to occur, you need a near-perfect line of sight between three objects. The observer, who's usually here on Earth, a source star, which is far away, located in the galactic center normally, that is very large, usually some type of red giant that emits a lot of light. And in between the Earth, the observer, and the source star is our star with a planet. Now, normally, the star with a planet is very, very dim. Uh, this is generally an M-dwarf star, tiny and red, too faint for us to see from Earth with the telescopes that we have right now. And if we can't see the star, we most certainly can't see the planet that's next to it. However, as these three objects move through, or rather, these three parties move through space and time and line up, the star in between, the lens star and the lensed planet, can act as a large magnifying glass in space. And what they do, their gravity bends the light from the source star around itself and focuses that light towards Earth. Uh, so basically, you end up with looking at this source star's light over time, and you see it glowing normally, glowing normally, and as that star 
plant uh, that lens star passes in front of it, the lens the light from the source star starts to get brighter and brighter. It magnifies. That magnifying glass effect starts to happen. Light comes in and is focused towards Earth. And that causes that star, source star to magnify up to 1,000 times brighter than we normally expect to see due to the lens star. And if you also have a planet that's associated with that lens star, it'll magnify even brighter. So this is this is fascinating because one of the things we do in in science all the time when we use general relativity for the universe is we talk about how space is curved and we take advantage of the effects that these masses, these especially if they're very large masses that occupy pretty small volumes, they're going to cause there to be a significant amount of curvature to space anywhere they go. So we know in our local neighborhood, the sun is the biggest source of mass that curves space. If we go to the center of the galaxy, right, we have black holes there, like the big one at the center of the Milky Way. That's a big source of curvature. When we're looking, though, at a very particular line of sight from us to, let's say, a red giant star, and we like red giant stars, I assume, because they're just large sources of light. They take up a large amount of angular diameter. And exactly. so you and so you have this big source of light, this big angular source of light you're looking at. And as you're looking at it, some source of curvature, some mass that's going to have its own extra effect on the curvature of space is going to pass in between you and the object you're looking at. That's the alignment you're talking about. And when you get that passage, when it passes in between your line of sight, you not only get that extra curvature of space, which is going to cause, you know, a slight motion and deflection of the light coming from the background star, coming from the giant star, you're actually going to get a magnification effect. This is the general concept of gravitational lensing, and because it's happening from a small mass, we call this microlensing. What makes a microlens different than any other type of gravitational lens, and what causes this extreme magnification effect? So we call it microlensing primarily because the scale, physical scale size of what we're looking at on the, si on the sky is on the order of micro arc seconds in size. Normal gravitational lensing is a much larger phenomenon where we can see galaxies that appear to bend or have many different images. This scale of microlensing is so small that our telescopes can't resolve these extra images that are coming in. Instead, it manifests as this brightening. So when this when space is curved and the light from the source star is traveling towards us and is bent towards us, that extra curvature bends some extra light rays that we weren't expecting that wouldn't have normally bent, not, wouldn't have normally reached Earth to then reach us again. It sounds like what you're saying is you you're not just getting micro in the sense that the deflection is micro. It sounds like you're getting two other effects. One is that because you have this micro curvature of space, this little region where space is curved, this extra amount, it takes these photons that would otherwise, you know, just spread radially out from the star 
that you're imaging, they get bent and focused back towards you. So when you talk about lensing, like this is actually acting like a converging lens. It's taking these light rays that were actually diverging through space and it's bringing them back together where you can observe them. It also sounds like it's micro as far as a time scale goes. A lot of these big sources that have these big curvatures to space from them, you know, we we can only observe changes in them over hundreds of thousands or millions or even tens of millions of years. How how fast are these microlensing signatures? So you're definitely right that uh, the time scale of these events is shorter than general gravitational lensing. And that's because the time scale is directly related to the mass of the object that is doing the lensing. So when we're looking at uh, galaxies on that big scale, galaxies are so massive that this lensing process takes a very long time, thousands upon thousands of years. But when you go to microlensing, the average event for a lens star lasts on the order of about 40, 45 days. Now, if you have a black hole that happens to be doing the lensing, that can last years, maybe one year or so nominally. If we're going to the smallest scale, if we're looking at planets, the event timescale of that lens uh, event overall is going to be on the order of hours. So this could mean for an Earth-sized planet that might be out there, the little blip of magnification that we receive here on Earth will only last for one hour. That's fascinating. So I I could have had this naive thought that maybe the the time scale of the signal would have something to do with the amount of time it took relative to our line of sight for an object to pass across the disk of this background star. But it doesn't sound like it's that time scale that's relevant. It sounds like what's much more relevant is just the amount that space is curved. It sounds like it's just mass dependent, not necessarily speed dependent. Exactly. So mass is definitely the larger player in this equation. There's a lot of moving pieces, but mass is generally what we use to relate to the time scale. And it's how we figure out the mass of the lens star that we see in our outcoming signals of microlensing. Right. So that's that's amazing because what you described as your initial scenario is there's going to be another star that transits near your line of sight or that causes the microlensing event in general of these red giant stars or of these larger luminous stars that you're looking at. But when you have a star that passes by, um, you know, you mentioned that these would be red dwarf stars. And I assume that that's just because, well, if you were to take a census of all the stars in the galaxy, something like 80% of all the stars are red dwarf stars. And therefore, those are the ones you're seeing because they're just the most common ones. But the stars aren't simply stars, they're star systems that have their own planetary systems as well. Exactly. So one of the things that's great about microlensing is that we are able to study the planets around these red dwarf stars that are predominant in the galaxy and in the universe. So what happens as because uh, red dwarfs are tiny, they're much fainter than stars like our sun, for example. So any other method that relies directly on the incoming light of a host star to planets, 
is biased towards these brighter stars. But microlensing doesn't care about how bright the host star happens to be. All it cares about is that the host star has some amount of mass. So microlensing allows us to understand the types of planets and how many planets there are in our galaxy that are around the most common type of star that we have here in the Milky Way, when other methods just aren't able to do that at this point in time, at least not to the in-depth in amount that microlensing is able to observe. So I I normally think about things in terms of like a signal to noise ratio that when you're when you're looking for planets through say a transit method right that that star that you're looking at, it has a certain brightness. And then the planet that passes in front of that star is going to block a certain amount of that light. So when you do the transit method to find planets, you're going to say, okay, here's my star. And if I block 1% of the light, if the planet is 1% the angular area of the star, um, then I block 1% of the light. And that's going to reduce the light output by 1%. And if it blocks 0.1% of the light, that's harder to see. And if it blocks 0.01%, that's harder to see. And so it's really dependent on what is your signal-to-noise ratio that determines whether you see it. But it sounds like with microlensing, we don't have to have that problem because it's not as though we're trying to extract the planetary data next to the star data. It's not like these are comparison things. It sounds like it's more of a of a painting thing, where if I were to paint a big green background for a hill, and that's my star, and then I were to paint like a little brown cow on top of the hill, uh, <laughs> that's my planet signal. And if there are seven cows on top of the hill, then I have seven planets of different masses. And I'll be able to tell this with the microlensing data because each individual mass has its own unique signal that's superimposed on top of the other one. Exactly. So that's, I think, a pretty clever way of looking at how microlensing signals are are analyzed. And when we're thinking about something like signal to noise, a lot of times with transits, those signals can be very faint. With microlensing, the star that we're looking at in the sky can become over 1,000 times brighter than it normally is. So when you, and it has a very characteristic shape, when you're looking at the light as it appears over time, it sort of creates a bell type shape. So as the three, as the source star, as the lead star, and as the observer line up in near perfect line of sight, the background star, that source star light becomes brighter and brighter in the shape of a bell, hits a peak, and as the systems become misaligned, then the, that that starts to uh, fall off and disappear again. We are able to see these extra signals from planets as interlopers on this sort of bell shape, this hill-shaped type signal. And sometimes they can look like a cow or a tree, a spike in that magnification where we didn't expect it before. Uh, and sometimes they can cause even a dimming that we didn't expect that wouldn't have appeared unless there was a planet also there. It, there's a lot of factors that go into play, namely how close the planet happens to be to its host star, what angle we're actually observing it uh, at, or how far away the host star happens to be from us. These are all, and there's others, but there are, these are all factors that change the signal that we see. But the real takeaway is that a microlensing signal on its own, especially from a massive object, is really hard to miss 
when it comes to looking at a simple light curve, light over time, because that magnification, that brightening of that the source star is just so huge compared to its normal baseline value. And that's and that's really great because one of the things we worry about or one of the things that we worry about in a lot of areas of astronomy is are we looking at the right time? Are we analyzing this, you know, to pull out the signal amidst this sea of background data? And with microlensing, one of the easy things about it, not that really any of this is easy, but relatively easy, is you look at, okay, we have this, uh, we have this base continuum amount of light emitted by this star, and we set up our telescope to monitor the light coming from a whole slew of stars, and then, bam, we have this just enormous brightening effect. We have just huge brightening effect. It's like watching a J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, right? You just get a, a huge <laughs> yes. lens flare just like, whoosh, right in your face, and you can't miss it. Now, that tells you this is where we need to look. This is the event that's super important right here. The key seems to be to meet the hard part is then saying, okay, now we saw this event. We know this is where it happens. Now we've got to go and extract all of the information we can from this signal and determine how many masses were there? What are the mass values? What are their orbital properties? And that seems to be where where the real dirty work comes in. Yes, so that is that's definitely a, a difficult piece. But one other thing that actually goes into the observations that tends to be important is that microlensing, while super cool, is really intrinsically rare. So for a star, when we're looking at our galactic center, for any star, there is a less than one in a million chance of it experiencing microlensing while we happen to be observing it. So what we have to do to mitigate this uh, issue is to look at millions upon millions of stars all at once. So we need to monitor the signals from millions of stars all at once very frequently, so at a high cadence, we take many pictures every night to look for this initial brightening. And if we see a particular star that looks like it's starting to go into a microlensing event, that looks like all of those factors are aligning in space and time, we point a bunch of extra telescopes around the world to look at it at an even higher cadence to try and get the data that fills out those planetary signals. So when, when a planet is uh, orbiting its host star, and that host star happens to be a microlensing star. We are looking for signals that are on a much shorter time scale, more on the order of hours as opposed to, say, 45 days for the overall star that I was talking about before. So in order to get those signals out that you're, you're talking about, in order to try and derive these planet system properties, the mass, how the separation between the star and the planet, we need to really fill out those data points at a high cadence in order to do that. So we start by looking at a million, millions upon millions of stars. And then we say, okay, these ones are starting to look brighter. Let's point all of our extra telescopes that are not survey telescopes at this one particular star and monitor it very closely in the hopes that eventually we're going to find a planet in that signal. Once we have all of our data collected, so we usually do our data collection first and then incomplete, and then we do our analysis afterwards. That's when the dirty work really does start of saying, okay, we need to fit this light curve. We need to figure out what 
configuration of parameters, what configurations of masses and separations can exist to create this type of signal. And oftentimes there are things we call degeneracies, which means that maybe this this combination works, but also this equally well. And it can be a debate about which uh, situation is actually more likely. Right. So so degeneracy is a big problem with everything. It's just sort of like if you if you had a light source that was a certain brightness, like when you look at a star in the sky with your naked eye, you can't tell is this a relatively faint star that's very close to us, or is this an intrinsically very bright star that's super far away? In fact, if you look in the Southern Hemisphere at two of the brightest stars in the sky that are very close to each other, Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri, uh, Alpha Centauri is the closest star to us. It is four light years away, and it's very similar to the sun. Beta Centauri is slightly dimmer, and it is thousands of times as bright as the sun, and it is hundreds of times farther away. So you can't really know everything just by making one type of observation. But with microlensing, you mentioned that we use survey telescopes to do this. So you have a telescope like PanStars or the Sloan Digital Sky Survey or, or other smaller telescopes that go and take a look at a large area of the sky on relatively short periods of time, over relatively short periods of time, um, they're not going to see something like the Hubble Deep Field. They're not going to see these super faint objects. They are going to be capable, however, of seeing a large number of objects all at once. And so if any one of them changes, if any one of them suddenly starts to brighten by a factor of, you know, 10 or 50 or 100, that's when you get really interested. That also explains why you focus your search on the galactic center, because that's where the stars in our sky, as far as what we can see, appear the densest. Yes, exactly. And um, so what I do specifically is I work with a survey called the UKERTS Microlensing Survey. It's using the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope that's located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And we use this telescope to observe many, many stars in the infrared. So at wavelengths a little bit longer than what the human eye can see and look for microlensing events that are exactly located at the galactic center. So these are very, very dense fields of stars. And when we see that one of these stars happens to have one of these signals or starts to have one of these signals, we can have the ability to either alert other telescopes to say, hey, let's focus in on this specific star. Or we can, after the fact, talk to other collaborations, other researchers who are studying similar areas of the sky and say, excuse me, do you have any extra data that we can use? If we combine our efforts together, maybe we can find a little bit more about the star than we could uh, just on our own. So in this way, microlensers often uh, are able to combine their resources in terms of the number of telescopes together from just having a survey which looks at wide areas of the sky, but without focusing in on one individual star with a uh, high cadence or high, high, uh, yeah, looking at one single star, um, and are able to combine with other people who have done the same thing, combine all those data points and say, okay, here's a more complete image of what we're trying to understand about this specific microlensing event. 
That's great. And just so everyone listening knows, when she says high cadence, that's the technical term that means we're going to try and shorten the time scale that we come back to this star, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the faster and faster and faster we can observe and take a new observation and a new observation, that's going to give us more information mm-hmm. about this microlensing event. Exactly. Cadence is just a rate at which we take pictures of the night sky. So surveys often take pictures fairly slowly, maybe three pictures per night of the same space in the, in the night sky, where uh, telescopes that are focusing on one specific object might take a picture every 30 seconds. So there's the big difference between the uh, number of data points that you have, either three per night or hundreds per night. So that's the difference between cadences. And that gets really important when you start looking for planets, because like you said, when you have these larger masses, like star-type masses, you're talking about days that... Mm-hmm. You're talking about days. The signal could last for days. So if you start to see this brightening and it's because of a star, that's great. You know, taking a few pictures a day or taking a few pictures a night might be just fine for identifying that. But if you want the details of that planetary system, you need to see those those quick spikes, those big rises and falls, those faster signals. And for that, you need more and more images. You mentioned that you're using the U- the Eukert telescope, right? The UKIRT, the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, because we love acronyms in astronomy, (laughs) um, which is perfect for looking at the galactic center. Those of you who've ever looked at the Milky Way with your own eyes and you've seen like, oh yeah, there's this big this big bright white streak in the sky and then there are these big dark bands in it those dark bands are dust lanes you see visible light with your own eyes and visible light guess what dust that dust in the galactic plane super good at blocking it but dust grains are a particular size and they are better at blocking blue light than they are at red light. The longer your wavelengths are, just based on the size of the dust grains that exist in our real universe, the longer your wavelengths of light are, the better you are at being transparent to all that dust. So you look in the infrared, not because like, oh, well, you have access to this telescope, although that's true. You look in the infrared because that's the best tool you have for viewing all of these stars located towards the center of the galaxy. Exactly. So why by using the Eukert telescope in our unique wavelength range, we're just looking in the near infrared, we're actually able to look through all of that dust that's located at the center of our galaxy and discover hundreds of new events that previous surveys have not been able to see so far. And one of the big reasons that we're looking at using infrared or why we choose to use infrared wavelengths as opposed to, say, optical, what our eyes can actually see, is because we're preparing for an upcoming telescope called WFIRST, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, which is currently on the books at NASA to be launched in the mid-2020s. And so WFIRST is a flagship mission for NASA, meaning it's one of the big ones like Hubble or the James Webb Space Telescope. It's supposed to come after James Webb. And this telescope is going to be focused for one third of its mission at looking at the galactic center for microlensing events in similar wavelengths of what UKIRT is able to observe. So we're using UKIRT now to look in the infrared to prepare 
for WFIRST to say, say to WFIRST, okay, these are the best places to look if we want to understand microlensing events as a whole, because there are a whole lot going on in this region of space, as opposed to this other region of space. And it helps us plan for this big upcoming survey and help while at the same time helping us discover new planets and new microlensing events. And the huge advantage of using microlensing to take a census of planets to determine what types of planets are out there is, yeah, it comes with its own set of biases. Uh, because every observational technique comes with its own set of biases. But these are different than the transit planet biases. These are different than the radial velocity biases. These are different than the direct imaging biases. So what microlensing allows you to do, if I understand it correctly, is it allows you to take a uh, more unbiased survey of when you have stars with planets around them, what are the types of planets, the masses of planets, the orbital parameters of planets, the ratio of the planet to star mass ratios that you're going to see? What types of planets actually exist in the universe? It doesn't rely on having a geometric alignment like the transit method does. It doesn't rely on having your planet orbit the star with a certain frequency like the radial velocity method does. It doesn't rely on your planet being well separated from your star like the direct imaging method does. And more than that, we're actually expecting larger numbers of planets and events, especially once W first comes online. So it sounds like this might be the best method, certainly over the next decade, of actually determining how typical, like what does a typical star system in the universe look like and what are the variety of different types of star systems and planetary systems that are out there? Yes. So microlensing is actually has a pretty cool bias in that it's really good at finding planets that are located beyond the star's snow line. So the snow line is the point at which uh, liquid water that would be on the surface of a planet uh, that's orbiting its star would turn into ice. So my, most planet methods or most detection methods like transits or, or radial velocity are really good at finding planets that are close into their stars that cause either big wobbles or big dips in brightness as they eclipse their stars. Direct imaging is great at finding huge planets that are very far away from their stars. But that leaves a lot of area in between. And that area in between is the area where most of the planets in our solar system actually exist. Microlensing is a technique that enables us to fill in the gaps that essentially exist from about Earth all the way out to Jupiter in relative size for uh, various planetary systems. So microlensing allows us to discover planets that are analogous to Mars in our solar system or uh, Saturn. And other methods at this point in time aren't as good at finding true analogs to Mars or Saturn or similar types of planets um, as microlensing is. So this WFIRST mission that's coming up, uh, a recent work by a collaborator of mine named Matthew Penny, he was able to determine that WFIRST would be able to find uh, so a planet that's truly analogous to Earth, meaning it's as far away from its host star uh, of as Earth is from the Sun, as well as in its the same mass. So it can produce Earth, uh, Saturn, 
Uranus, Neptune, Mars, and even potentially, at its very best, Ganymede. So microlensing is able to find exoasteroids, potentially, if we're using W-first or a very high-powered telescope that happens to be in space. And this is the only exoplanet detection method that is able to do that at this point in time. You know, that's that's something we don't often think about. Everyone, I think, in the popular media, they're either looking for a, a potentially habitable world, like a, an Earth-like world uh, with the right temperatures, or they're looking for a, a world that might be potentially habitable via a different mechanism, like, like maybe what Europa has or Enceladus has uh, with a subsurface ocean underneath some ice where maybe hydrothermal vents powered by tidal forces are causing the emission of energy. But what do you get that's actually common in the universe. You know, we know that we have an asteroid belt, um, which, you know, isn't quite at what we'd call the snow line in our solar system, but is rather what we'd call the frost line, which is where the snow line was back when the solar system was first forming. And of course, snow lines move over time because stars evolve over time. But when you're looking for that, you know, would we be able to detect something like Ceres? Uh, probably not. But if something like Ceres grew a substantial factor, right, if we had something more massive than Ceres out there, well, then all of a sudden microlensing becomes a real mm -hmm. possibility for detecting it. We don't just want to know what's like us out there. We want to know all of what's actually out there. And microlensing, it sounds like, is giving us a window on the types of planets, the types of bodies, the types of asteroids, moons, etc., masses in general, that no other survey telescope or technique or exoplanet measurement technique is sensitive to. Yes, that's exactly correct. And that's why microlensing is so important. And that's why I personally care about it, because we don't know, for example, how common our own solar system is in the universe. We, we need to figure that out. Like we, we are able to observe these really exotic worlds, hot Jupiters, Jupiters that are close to their sun or really, really far away planets through other uh, methods. But we're, it's a really difficult for scientists to find solar systems like our own or really understand if our solar system is unique in any way whatsoever. So microlensing is sort of a, a lens, if you will, into that sort of world. We're trying to figure this out, and we're trying to complete the census of galactic exoplanets. That's what we're calling it, sort of. Uh, that's what we're calling it. And so we're filling out an area of census where Kep missions like Kepler and TESS have left off, where radial velocity methods... Uh, are doing a great job in their specific sector, but they're not yet able to find or reproduce Mars. Microlensing wants to fill in that area of parameter space. We want to look at stuff that is most similar to our solar system, trying to figure out, are we unique or uh, are, are we very common? I think that's always a fascinating question. And microlensing absolutely is something that can shed light on that. But microlensing can also shed light on things that no other planetary survey technique can ask can look for and one of the things that i'm most fascinated about is this idea of rogue planets or orphan planets or planets that don't have their own 
parent stars. We know from two mechanisms. One is when you form stars in general, they don't generally form in isolation. They form in these large clusters where it's sort of a race between these gravitational clumps to grow and grow and become stars and stellar systems and the evaporation effects of all the radiation produced by the new stars that work to kick all this material out and evaporate it away. Everything is a race. And sure, we see star clusters. We see the winners. We see all the stars that managed to get enough mass in a short enough time before all the gas boiled off that they reached that nuclear fusion limit and bam, they became full-fledged stars. But what about the cosmic losers? What about the ones that didn't get enough mass in time, that maybe didn't even become brown dwarfs, that are just these Earth or Neptune or Jupiter or somewhere in between mass objects that tried to grow, that tried to get massive enough and didn't quite make it there? We typically have no way of looking for these, but with microlensing, because the only thing you need to be sensitive to is mass along a line of sight, microlensing can reveal these rogue planets too, can't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's something that we're really interested in. So in order to find a rogue planet, you need to be looking um, at very high cadence because they are lower mass than the stars we're normally looking at. The little blips that they cause in data are going to be short-lived, so on the order of hours as opposed to days, weeks, or months. So, But uh, as, you, as you said before, um, no other method can really find these planets because they're not self-luminous. They're not glowing. They're just dark. They're, they're interlopers in our galaxy, or so we think. So there's, there must be some amount of leftovers from star creation, as, as you put it. And these leftovers, these, these cosmic losers, um, are really unseen up until now. However, if we have a microlensing telescope, a telescope that is looking for these specific signals that are focused only on mass and not on light from the uh, planet, the lens itself then we are able to discover these rogue planets, uh, assuming that they are out there. So while we don't know of rogue planets at this point in time, we're hope I think, um, we're hoping that WFIRST or other future missions that are going to be looking at the sky with very high cadence and at large areas of the sky, we're hoping that these new missions will be sensitive enough to detect these rogue planets and tell us a little bit more about what it is to the process of forming a star and what like a stellar nursery would be like such that it's so violent that all these extra objects get kicked out and where they might be living today. So we want to learn more about this and microlensing can allow us uh, a look into this dark universe. I think that's that's absolutely fascinating because this is a this is a type of dark matter that doesn't generally excite people because it can't be it can't be all the dark matter it can't solve the galactic rotation problem it can't it can't answer all our questions it it won't be like a vote for Pedro it won't make all your dreams come <laughs> true um, but these things do exist or they ought to exist. And as far as I know, I think the last time I checked was maybe a couple of years ago. I think there were a total of four rogue planet candidates. And we just have to say candidate because when you see a brightening and dimming event, um, 
you can't really do a follow-up on it. You just have like, well, we saw it brighten and we saw it dim and we can infer a mass and we can infer some other properties about it. And that was it. It passed in front of a star and now it's gone and it caused a brightening. And that's really all we can say about it. And with just, a, I think, four events in the Neptune mass category that, you know, they appeared and then they disappeared – it's really hard to draw robust conclusions about what's out there. But but I think this possibility of saying we're going to do a larger survey, we're going to do continuous high cadence monitoring, and we're going to start seeing how common are these events. We're going to start seeing what is the mass distribution of these planets out there. We may be able to learn one of the things that excites me is how do we form the majority of rogue planets out there? Do we form them with the scenario I gave you earlier where these are basically failed stars that that just wander the galaxy because they didn't grow large enough? Or... Are these like some people hypothesize we had a fifth giant planet in the early stages of our solar system that was ejected by gravitational dynamics? Is that where these rogue planets come from? And moreover, how many of them are there? Some people estimate that there may be as many rogue planets in the galaxy as there are stars in the galaxy. Other people estimate there may be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times as many rogue planets as there are stars in the galaxy. As far as I know, microlensing is the only chance we have at this point in our technological time of actually answering these questions. Yes, that is true. So microlensing really is our best and possibly only tool right now of detecting or characterizing these rogue planets. Now, one of the downfalls of microlensing, and which you alluded to a little bit earlier, is that it only happens once for a specific system. So that brightening and dimming is a one-time shot. We can't observe it again. So we need to, that's why we need to take as many observations of the event as it is ongoing as possible in order to confirm our discoveries in terms of using multiple telescopes to observe the same phenomenon or telescopes that are in different areas of Earth or in space. These things help us out. When it comes to rogue planets, the big game changer is going to be the number that we hope to observe. So while these events are only going to happen once, and probably for the rogue planets, we're only going to be able to observe them with W first, a space-based telescope, of which we only have one. Um, the fact that we're going to be potentially observing very many mitigates the issues of those small number statistics of having only four rogue planets. Uh, and what we can do is say, okay, I have a batch of 100 rogue planet candidates. Considering how good our telescope is at what it does, at observing these microlensing events, I can tell you that 90% of 90 of these 100 events that we've observed are definitely rogue planets. I just can't tell you for sure which ones are real, but I know this estimated number of how many we're observing based on a, this game of statistics, because we have a lot more, we will have a lot more observations to play with, to learn from and to understand than we do today. 
I love this. I love this idea of you can't tell us which ones are real because this is this is getting into the weeds a little bit. And I think I think our listeners are ready for the weeds a little bit. <laughs> I think we can say like, okay, when we see this brightening, this dimming, we took all the data we could. We we took the most advantage of our one shot as we could. We have a good rogue planet candidate, or we have a good exoplanet candidate. Um, but we don't just say we've got a planet for sure or something like that because there are confounding factors. There are possible ways that we recognize, you know, this might not be a planet. It could be something else. What are some of the other things it could be? What are some of those confounding factors that, you know, I hope they don't, but they probably do keep you up at night and make you <laughs> wonder like, oh, was this event really a planet or was it something else? So one of the biggest uh, antagonists that we have to deal with is binary source effects. So what can happen sometimes is that instead of looking at one background source star, one background red giant, what we're actually looking at is the light from two. And this effect cause, can cause a degeneracy in our light curves in a, that can mimic the appearance of some type of planet and it can cause the shape of our light curves to change in a way where we can say we it changes our confidence level of okay this is a planet versus this happens to be a, a binary star system or a binary source star even and these these sort of uh these sort of scenarios can overlap so that's one of the things that causes us uh, some headaches. Uh, another thing that causes headaches is really simple, but uh, that headache is uh, weather. So most of our observations are done on the ground, and we rely on clear night skies in order to do our observations. Now, considering that microlensing is a one-off event, we can only see it happening once. If you get a cloudy day in the middle of your observing of a specific event, you have 45 days and maybe 10 of those days you just have a really miserable rainy set of time, you could easily miss a planet in that data and you would never know. And you won't be able to find it again because you'll never be able to see it again. So that's one of, another thing that sort of gets in our way that hopefully we're going to get around by going uh, into space. Um, another thing that can help us actually though on sort of the other side of the coin is by using multiple observatories, which I alluded to a little bit earlier. So one of the telescopes that we use in conjunction, uh, for example, with UCIRT or other ground-based surveys is the Spitzer Space Telescope. And because Spitzer Space Telescope is observing approximately one astronomical unit away from Earth at this point in time, the shape of the light curve over time of the microlensing event changes because it's not perfectly aligned anymore. The Earth, our observers on Earth, and the observer that is the telescope are located at a far enough distance away that that alignment is offset a little bit, and we get slightly different light curves over time. By measuring the differences between these two light curves, we're able to infer a little bit more about the planet or lensing events than we would be able to do if we were just observing from one observatory here on Earth. So that's one of the good things combined with some of the not so good things uh, that uh, sort of get into the weeds of some of the difficulties of our observations. 
Yeah, but all of that is so fascinating. You know, to go back to what you said very early on, you talked about how these tiny, tiny deflections caused by the mass of microlensing, we're really talking about micro arc seconds. And for those mm-hmm. of you who want more of a feel for things, when we talk about micro arc second resolution, this is about a thousand times better resolution than you can get with the Hubble Space Telescope. But it's also saying, you know, what is a micro arc second? Well, it's basically saying if you went to the galactic center and you said, okay, we're going to take something that's about the size of Earth's orbit around the sun at a distance 25,000 light years away at the galactic center, that's roughly in the micro arc second range too. So that's exactly micro arc second differences what we're looking at when you talk about something like the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is about an Earth-sun distance away from us looking at something in space at the same time that we're looking at it in space. They're going to see micro arc second differences from what we see. And that means we can actually reconstruct something maybe physically meaningful about the source geometry. I love what you also said about binary star systems. There are just two little facts I want to throw out for everyone listening at home. The Kepler mission, which detected more exoplanets than any other mission, had many, many more planetary candidates than it did actual planets. Of all the planetary candidates it had, Uh, somewhere almost half of them wound up being thrown out because what were the planetary candidates for Kepler? A bunch of them actually turned out to be multi-star systems. So if you said, hey, how come Kepler had like this many thousand planetary candidates, but only that many thousand planets, it's because of multi-star systems. The same systematic that confounds the microlensers also confounds the transitors. And if you were to take a look at all the stars in the universe, they are not necessarily like the sun, where we have one star orbited by planets. I know that's everyone's default, but when we do all of our surveys of all the star systems out there, only about 50% of the stars out there are singlet stars in their star system. If you were to take a look at all the stars in the universe, somewhere around a quarter of them are bound into binary star star systems, and the rest of them are bound up into multi-star systems, trinaries, quaternaries. We even have the, I believe it's the Castor system. If you just look at the bright star Castor in our sky, is a six, a sextuple star system. So, These are pretty common things. With microlensing, hopefully, we'll be able to not only use what we learn about all the events we have to sort of reconstruct what are the planets out there, but hopefully we can use what we learn about all the different types of stars and star systems out there to learn even more about the full suite of diversity of what's out there in the universe. For example, Savannah, if you had a binary or multi-star system that was doing the microlensing, that was transiting across the face of a red giant or something like that and causing a lensing signal, would you be able to tease out not only the presence and mass of both stars, but would you be able to tease out if there are planets of various masses orbiting this multi-star system? 
So that's actually something that a lot of the lead microlensers in the world are working on right now. So the mathematics of a system like that tend to get really, really complicated. And trying to understand the uh, how all of these many parameters and factors all confound together becomes beyond what a general human can do. And that's the type of problem that we're throwing at supercomputers right now. So we're trying to use a lot of new methods, uh, maybe um, methodologies related to even machine learning, which is sort of a buzzword right now uh, within the astronomical community, to try and say, okay, what's going to happen if I try and figure out this really complicated system. What is, if, if I throw all these parameters in, what, will, what is the light curve that will come out? And can I use machine learning to back calculate all of those initial parameters? Let's see if we, if we get out what we're putting in. But it is something that we're confident that with more time and with growth of our field, that is a, a problem that we're hoping to be able to solve. And we're going to have to solve it pretty darn soon with WFIRST going up. So this, there's because there are so many uh, complicating factors for even just a one planet, one star system, there are, I believe, nine different uh, parameters that need to be fit uh, in every light curve, which basically in, in human speak, that's, that's a whole lot of junk needed, a whole lot of calculation needed in order to figure out uh, what we're actually looking at. This scales with the number of bodies in the system. So if we need seven or nine for a, a one planet system, maybe double that for a two planet system and so on and so forth. If you add another star in there, that's a whole other deal. So these are problems that we're, there, our community is actively working on and we're hoping that experts uh, uh, from other fields, especially mathematicians, um, maybe have some cool ideas to help us figure out this, this complicated but very interesting problem as we prepare for uh, this flood of new data, which will undoubtedly contain systems that you've just described. And that's that's really fascinating because that to me that's real evidence for this is how the field of science advances that we can we can look at any scientific field and say you know what our our measurement capabilities or our observational capabilities are getting better and better so we can take more data we can get more detailed data more bet better data improved data cleaner data data with a higher signal to noise ratio faster cadence data etc. And then we can say, well, now there's more we can discover instead of limiting ourselves to a star and a planet or a star or a planet. We can start looking at multi-star systems, multi-planet systems, multi-parameter fits, you know, excessively multi-parameter fits. <laughs> and and we can even start saying like, OK, like we made templates, we made templates, we we did processing, we we used all the computational tricks we know. And now we have the machines go and they start looking for their own tricks and their own like algorithms and they start writing them themselves this seems to be we are at the precipice of unlocking a new frontier that we know some of the things we expect to be out there it sounds like within the next 10 to 15 years we're actually going to start getting an explosion of exoplanet data of stellar data of galactic stellar data from all the things we can't directly image we'll be able to see 
um, possibly even as a function of distance, if the microlensing signal depends on how close these lenses are to us, we might even be able to see does the population statistics of stars and planets change as we get closer to or farther from the galactic center. This is a whole lot of speculation on my part because you never want to be overconfident about what you can find until the data comes in, but I'm not afraid to ask you to speculate what are you most excited about the possibility of finding and learning through microlensing over the next decade or two? So I think the most important thing to me or the most exciting thing that I'm looking forward to learning about is analogs to our outer solar system. And when I say outer solar system, I mean planets that have orbits beyond that of Mars in our solar system and, and so on. So we don't know a lot about this region of parameter space. We don't know a lot about these planets, if they exist, what they could be like. And microlensing is really our best bet at discovering them and learning about them uh, over the next couple of decades. So I'm looking forward to finding a Mars analog, to finding a Europa analog, to finding a Ganymede analog, if we're exceptionally lucky and really, really good at uh analyzing our science. But I want to be one of those first people who says, look, I found an exoasteroid. Here's proof. I think that'd be a pretty neat title to have. I think that's fantastic for multiple reasons. First off, we are talking about finding smaller and less massive objects than we can find with any other technique. So this is talking about hitting the low end mass spectrum in a way that we can't do otherwise and finding out what's out there in other solar systems at these at these low mass ends because that's where the majority of objects are certainly in our own solar system second i love it that we are talking about the outer solar system as pretty much mars or beyond do you hear that pluto files outer solar system goes goes way way in to where you think it is outer solar system pretty much go beyond earth beyond mars you're the outer solar system i love it the last thing I want to ask you about possibilities is there are there's a lot of uncertainty as far as what do all the mass distributions of clumps of matter in the universe look like. We know that there is some type of dark matter that isn't protons, neutrons, or electrons out there that makes up about five-sixths of all the mass in the universe. Of the one-sixth that is made of stuff like us, we still don't know where all of it is. We know that a small fraction is in stars. We know that a large fraction is in plasma and dust. But we also know that some fraction of it should be locked up in these tiny low mass objects, low mass relative to a star, but we don't know how it's distributed. They could be planet sized, they could be giant planet sized, they could be basketball sized. If they're basketball sized, you won't see them with microlensing, <laughs> but it seems like microlensing is a tremendous way to find and constrain the population of these objects out there. I would love it if you found the first exoasteroid, but I would love it even more if you were able to show that actually here's what the population of asteroids throughout the galaxy looks like and here's how it contributes to dark matter. With the upcoming lensing surveys that we'll be doing and the upcoming microlensing surveys and tools we'll have, is this an actual possibility? 
I think it is a possibility to certain degrees. So looking at an actual population of asteroids from the galaxy, that might be a question for further down the line, maybe 30 years or 40 years from now, if we're lucky. But in terms of constraining things like rogue planets or something called machos, massive compact halo objects, uh, other clumps of baryonic or matter like us, that might exist out there but are dark that we can't quite see. This is something that uh, microlensing in our upcoming surveys might be able to chip away at. So we're basically, if we can understand, if we can constrain part of that one-sixth by looking at rogue planets or rogue asteroids or something like that, if our discoveries can chip away at that, they can help better our under- help us better understand what's going on in our universe. They can help us constrain part of the dark matter that we know must be out there. I love this so much. I think that it's fascinating. You know, when a lot of people look forward to a telescope like W first, they're excited about cosmology and the surveys we can do with distant supernovae and the fact that it's going to have 50 times the field of view of Hubble. And I'm excited about that too. And a lot of people are excited about the possibility of all the direct images it can take of exoplanets and what we can learn about exoatmospheres. But with a telescope like this, I love the idea that one of the things we get along for the ride is just by looking at the stars in the galactic center, just by looking looking very quickly, uh, taking an image, taking an image, taking an image, we can find this huge population of objects that we know must be out there that we've seen so few signs of so far. All of a sudden, we're going to be going from a handful of objects to an explosion of objects. And we're going to be learning in a whole new way what it is that makes up our universe. Savannah, thank you for joining us on the Starts With a Bang podcast. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners? So I guess the biggest thing that I'm hoping that you all can take away from it is that microlensing exists. We're a pretty small field. There's only a little over 100 people in the world who actually focus on microlensing, even though the science is so incredibly robust. So we're looking for people to join our ranks to help us understand the universe and our place in it, to help us understand the the dark areas of what planets are out there or the dark stars that we can't see right now, but microlensing can help shed some light on. So we are excited about microlensing. It has this brilliant, beautiful future. And I want to herald that. I want to share it with the world. And I'm so excited that you have all joined us and listened to me talk about the science that is so special to me. I think it's so fascinating. You know, when you talk about microlensing, this is something that is a really relatively new field. The very first microlensing event that detected a uh, an extrasolar planet was only made in 2003. That's crazy. This is this is a new field. And so when we're, you know, yeah, we had some lensing candidates and we had some other events that, you know, may go as far back as 1989, but this is a brand new field. And with the new telescopes and the new observatories and the new tools that we have at our disposal, this is prepared to explode. If you're a young person in astronomy and you're like, oh, I don't know what to go into, 
microlensing is absolutely the way to do it. If I were to add up all of the exoplanets discovered by microlensing through 2013, you, you know, you were maybe getting a few hundred a year earlier in the decade. In 2014, for the first time, we not only went over the 200 mark, we went over the 900 mark. So I think if this is something that interests you, the explosion of technology, the explosion of quality data, it's going to mean an explosion for what we can learn about the universe. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. It's only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go out to Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Matt Rumel, John Van Balakuyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, John Duffield, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Nick Delroy, Paulina Barron, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Elver Sena Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Jason Luttrell, Charles Buchanan, Brainwise, Stefan Berniger, Ken Blackman, Frederick Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Joseph Dvorak, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slemak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Jeffrey Kidd, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbitta, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, John Seal, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you here next time for more Starts with a Bang. 